Good morning, church. Um, joy and a blessing to be with you as always. This time of year is one of my favorite times of the year because we get to celebrate Advent. We get to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Advent is a season of waiting, it's a season of expectation, but it's also a season of celebration. We celebrate Christ's birth. We celebrate the promises of the Old Testament realized in Jesus Christ. The one who was promised is the one who has now come, and we celebrate God with us. The Latin word that we get Advent for in English actually just means coming. And what they actually pointed to in the early church was the return of the king. So even though it's December and we're thinking about the birth of Jesus, may we also remember that Advent, it's about our Christ coming again. How blessed are we that God didn't just come once. Amen? God is coming again. In our devotional, in our Advent um, prayer and reading earlier, the, one of the definitions they gave by Advent it says, Advent comes from God for the creation of his kingdom. And I like that. I don't know if you heard that or remember that, but I thought it was good. Advent comes from God for the creation of his kingdom. So for this month um, of December, going through the weeks of Advent, we're going to have our four um, normal um, weeks of focus of hope, peace, joy, and love. For hope this morning, we're going to look at the story of Mary and talk about our God of hope. For peace, we're going to look at Anna the prophet and look at her story and see what lessons we can glean there. For joy, we'll go back to the scene in Elizabeth's house when the babies jumped for joy in her womb, and we'll talk about joy and what we can learn there. And for love, we're going to talk about Jesus and us. A lot of times this year, we talk about how Advent or Jesus coming is the gift, but we want to remember, like your parents try to teach you, it's not about the gift that you get. It's about the giver of the gift. Maybe that was just my parents. But remember... It's not just about the gift of the salvation that Christ brings. It's about our God who is love. And that's how we know who love is because of who God is. Um, we're going to open by praying this morning. Our prayer is actually adopted from another passage in Luke where we call the Song of Mary or Mary's Magnificat. Change the words around a little bit, but that'll be our opening prayer this morning. Let's pray together. Our souls glorify the Lord and our spirit rejoices in God our Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servants. From now on, all generations will be blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for us. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant, the church, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants of faith forever, just as he promised our ancestors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 1. I'll be reading Luke 1, verses 26 to 38. We'll also have it up on the screen so you can follow along there as well. Luke 1, starting at verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. 
But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. One of the things that's very, very interesting is that our modern parlance, or how we talk or how we think about hope, it tends to be a desire. When we say we hope for something, it's something we want. It's a desire or just a want or a wish, if you will. So, for example, I wish and I hope the Mets will win the World Series. That's a desire. That's a want. It'll probably never happen. But it builds character, so I'm okay with it. (laughs) What we have to realize, though, is when we read hope in the Bible, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the ancients had a different understanding of hope. For them, it wasn't just a desire or a want or a wish for something to happen. Simply put, to the ancient Christians and the first followers of God, hope was simply trusting God. Hope was trusting God that he is who he says he is. Hope was trusting God that he does what he says he will do. Hope is trusting God that everything he said, like Mary said or in the passages we read, no word from the Lord will not be accomplished. Hope, the Christian hope, was simply trust in God. Hope was keeping God's promises or trusting in God's promises. On Wednesday night, our group has been studying through a book of Max Lucado called Unshakable Hope. In this book, Lucado tucks chapter after chapter of all the promises of God and all the promises that we can walk in. Some of my favorite ones is Lucado points out that one of the greatest promises to everyone who chooses to follow Jesus is that there is therefore now no condemnation in a world that defines us by what we do or what we don't do, in a world that defines us by our past histories, or even sometimes when we define ourselves by where we fall short and where we lack and everything that we're not, when God looks at you as his daughter and his son, he sees no condemnation because you are indeed in Christ Jesus. Another promise that we talked about was just the simple fact that death has been defeated. What a wonderful passage in Corinthians when Paul writes and says, Oh, death, where art thou staying? We believe in Jesus Christ, not just coming to this world, Emmanuel with us, but we believe that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he was raised again so that death can be defeated forever. So we hold on to this unshakable hope that God has given us that death can be defeated, that death will be defeated. And it's not just a hope in heaven, but it's a hope that even today, That the death that is in us, that the darkness that is in us, that the brokenness that is in us, that our God is powerful enough to take that darkness and bring it into the light, to take that brokenness and make it whole, to make us who were dead alive in Christ Jesus. Death has been defeated, and death is still being defeated in Christ Jesus. You know, another wonderful promise we have and an unshakable hope that we have in trusting God is that one day we get to be daughters and sons of the king. We get to be heirs of God. 
Everything, kind of like the, the story of the, the, the parable of the two lost sons. Remember at the end when the father says to the son who's been there with him all the time, he says, everything I have is yours. It's always been yours. This morning, if you choose to follow Jesus and you give your life to him and you live for him and his kingdom, everything in the future is yours. All that God has is yours. You will inherit everything. You get to be an heir of the king this morning. This morning in our passages, we read through, we read about Mary, and we find that when Mary and we talk about hope, it's not simply a wish or a desire or a want. Mary believed in the God of hope by trusting him. Now, this week I did a lot of reading about Mary and found out some interesting stuff. You know, one of the ones I found out is that some of us believe, you know, we read in the scripture that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Some of us believe that, you know, after Jesus, you know, Mary had more kids. Those of us who believe that might be in a minority of Christians, which was shocking to me. There's billions of Christians who believe that Mary had Jesus and she was perpetually a virgin. If you meet one of them, say hi. Another thing I learned about Mary, though, that was really, really fascinating to me was the size of Nazareth. You know, a lot of times we lift up this story and we don't get to, like, just the basics. Nazareth was a small, rural, working-class town. It was small enough that to get the inhabitants of Nazareth, I'll probably have to combine, like, Oberlin and Bressler and put it together. Now, some of you are probably sitting here like, where's Oberlin and Bressler? It's okay. This is kind of what when Nathaniel meets about Jesus, he says, like, is there anything that good can come out of Nazareth? It's the same thing. Now, if you happen to live in Oberlin and Bressler and you're offended, be offended to people who don't know where you are. I know where you are. You're over the hill over there. Welcome. But Nazareth was this small working class town. In fact, that it was so small it had to be grouped into Galilee so you knew where it was because it never appeared on the map. So it'd almost be like, oh, you're from Oberlin, Nebraska. Where's that? Harrisburg. Oh, I know that. It's the same thing that's happening in our story. Another thing we know about Mary is that she was engaged. She was betrothed to, da- to Joseph, a son of David. And both of the times that we talk about the genealogy of Jesus, we point that out, right? Joseph might have been a carpenter. We think he was a carpenter because that's the skill that Jesus had and he learned um, but one of the fascinating things about Joseph is I think sometimes we downplay, not just, not I would say his importance, but we downplay his significance in the sense of, well, like, oh yeah, Joseph, he adopted Jesus, it was good, right? Joseph was from the royal line of David. Think about that. He might have been a carpenter in this little town, but he was from the royal line of David. Most of us can't trace back past five or six generations, right? Joseph can go all the way back thousands of years and says, David was my father, So he might have been this carpenter in this little working class town, but Joseph mattered a little bit. The other thing that's fascinating, though, about this story about Mary is that she was probably a teenager. The word that is used by by Luke here in the Greek talks about a maiden who was probably 14 years or younger. Some people look at that same word and they talked about how these maidens then would pledge their life. And this is kind of where the perpetual virginity of Mary may have been birthed. But they pledged their whole life to, to say, I will basically like nuns, right? I will not be with any man. My, my, my husband is Jesus or my husband is God. I will pledge my life to him. So a lot of times that's where they think this idea comes from. But the idea that we know for sure is that Mary was maybe at maximum 14 years old. So when we think about the faith of Mary, when we think about the trust that she has in God, may we go with her in this story to realize that this angel is appearing to a teenager. Next thing about Mary that you might have known, could have guessed, is that she was Jewish. Shocking, I know. But this is why this is important. Because even in both genealogies, in Matthew 1 and in Luke 3, the genealogies, when you read them at first account, it looks like we're talking about all these different people except Mary. 
But if you look a little bit closer, and sometimes it helps us in the Greek, because if you look in Luke 3, when it talks about the genealogy, everything looks the same except when it talks about Joseph and who his father is. And if you compare the two genealogies, for those of you who care, this is beautiful. This is amazing for the three of you. But the three, two genealogies, when you look at them, Joseph has a different father in both, right? And you miss that in the English, and you're just like, well, they don't know what they're talking about. In the Greek, though, there's a little article, which just means like a little, uh, literally, an uh, right? And that little article is to mean basically our interpretation of father-in-law. So if we take a step back, then we realize that these genealogies have different people because they're talking about different people. So in Matthew, you have Joseph's genealogy, which is all about the royal line, David, Solomon, and they have this son, Joseph. But when you get to Luke, when you get to Luke, you realize that Joseph's father-in-law has to be Mary's dad. So then when you go through that line, you realize that what we're talking about in Luke is really Mary's genealogy. Why is this important? Well, in Jewish culture, your Jewishness is only passed down through your mother. Now, I didn't know this. One of my best friends in the world, one of our best friends, is a, a kid by the name of a guy, man, right? He's a man. By the name of Jason, he visits us a couple times a year. Whenever he's with us, you see us because he's like 6'5", right? Um, and what's fascinating about Jason is you look at him, he just looks like a light-skinned black guy. No big deal. I love this story because um, neither of his brothers will claim who did this, but they, they, they grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, New York is honestly one of the most Jewish places on the planet. Um, I think at one point, they still might be, but it was more Jewish people in Brooklyn than Israel, right? Um, so they grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and they went to the pool. They had a pool membership and everything. And their mom was growing increasingly angry because every time after the pool, she noticed that her sons, and Jason doesn't claim, he claims it's not him, but her sons would just be making fun of these Jewish kids all the time. And it got so bad one time in the back, street, back seat that she pulls the car over and proceeds to tell all of them, shocking to them, it's like, you know, it's really fascinating you guys like to make fun of Jewish kids because you know what? You're Jewish, right? And these are kids who look like light-skinned black kids. Their whole life, they thought they were black. You know, and they're just like, wait, what do you mean? And then she proceeds to tell them, in my culture, you know, it's not about the dad. Dad is good and all that, but how we pass down the culture is through the mom. So your Jewishness is really for me. So you're just as Jewish as all those kids who don't look like you. To say it was awakening was, was something new. So that's why they don't, no one in the family claims who was making fun of it that mom got so mad it pulled the car over. But I say all that to say that Mary's Jewishness mattered. And I think when we look at this story, we need to realize that, yes, Joseph represented the, pre the royal line of Jesus, but in Mary's genealogy, she represents the priest. Joseph comes through Solomon and all the kings. Mary comes through Nathan, an unknown or a lesser known son of, 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 of David. Why does the Jewishness matter? It's because he was the Jewish Messiah. Sojourner Truth, which was a great abolitionist, has one of the most um, amazing, I think we've, we've shrunk it down to a poem, but I'm guessing it was a sermon, and it's a great, great little poem, and it's called Ain't I a Woman? And what I love about this, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit because I didn't memorize it, is she, she looks at, you know, Advent. She looks at Jesus coming into the world, and she basically says this, right? She says, you know, and it's funny because she's speaking to this group of abolitionists and, and women's suffrage people and all this thing. And she says to this group, and they're supposed to be Christians, and she says, you know what's fascinating when I think about you Christians is you love to talk about Jesus, and you love to talk about God, and, and it's wonderful. But when I look at Jesus, my Bible says, you know, it talks about the Spirit coming down. It talks about Mary. What does man have to do with anything? You got to let that sink in. It'll get you eventually. 
But what she's saying is that we need to honor Mary because not only is she chosen by God, but it was her humanity that's transferred to Jesus. All right? The other thing about Mary is that she's called. This story might be familiar if you're familiar with scriptures of prophets who get called. You might think of Samuel or Jeremiah or all these people where the angel or God appears to them in a dream and he calls them to do something. We must remember that Mary is not just the mother of Jesus, but this was almost an office that God chose and selected her to do. She was called to do this as a ministry. She was called to do this as a work. It wasn't just a blessing to bring God's child into the world. She was called to do just that. But lastly, the thing I think I love the most about Mary is that time and time again, whether it's in the Song of Mary that's called the Magnificat later on, or in our passage that we read this morning, she calls and thinks of herself as a servant. And I'm challenged by that. Because as a leader, I think of myself as a servant. But as a Christian, do I think of myself as a servant? When I look at the world around me, do I think of myself as someone God's placed here to serve our world? I think that's a challenging thing, but that's how Mary thought of herself. Challenges me, and I hope it challenges you. In our passage, we learn that she was favored. Out of all the people in the world, God chose her. Out of our passage this morning, we learn that she was faithful. She was faithful to what God had given her to do, and she was firm in her belief. In the passage this morning, Gabriel appears from this little town of Nazareth, and he comes to Mary, and he says, Mary, you're favored. God has chosen you. God has elected you to bring his child into this world. How amazing is that? But Mary, remember, God will be with you. And Mary is troubled. You know, she's troubled because for many reasons. One, she's a teenager. Two, there's an angel here. Three, they're saying crazy things, right? Now, I grew up thinking, you know, Mary's troubled because she maybe had been thinking about her culture and her society around her. Maybe she was thinking that I'm 14 years old. I'm engaged, but I'm not married yet. Now you're telling me I'm pregnant. How's that going to be received? Or maybe God had given her such a big promise, such a great hope, that she needed to make sure, are you going to be with me? Are you going to be with me through this thing? So Mary's troubled, and she looks Gabriel in the eye, and she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? How would this be? I've never been with a man. How would this be? I thought my life was going to be dedicated to God to, to raise my family this way. Now you're saying crazy things. You know, biology class is going to be skipped this morning. I know you're all happy. We can guesstimate how babies come into the world. If not, talk to Pastor Linda. She'll help you. But what I, what I want you guys to hold on to is simply this, though. We have to remember Mary was a teenager. I remember Mary is now going to be a pregnant teenager. And then if that's not enough, we got to add on she's an unmarried pregnant teenager. And that culture back then is not very different than our own. If we think about unmarried teen mothers today, it's not very different from our own. And maybe that's an accusation that we need to stop being making a reality and start changing that narrative. But in our culture, just like Mary's culture, an unmarried pregnant teenager comes with stigma. It comes with shame. And it comes with us pointing out the sin. You know, I hadn't thought about this in a deep, deep way until a couple summers ago. I led a mission trip, and our team was in Bogota, in Colombia. And we wanted, to, and every day we had something. You know, we had two different outreaches or two different ministries that we'd visit daily. And one of the ones we visited, I remember this day because it was the one I was probably the most tired for. I remember waking up that morning. I was like, Zach, where are we going? You know? And he's like, Aren't you running the trip? I was like, Yeah, but didn't you plan the trip? 
That's how Zach and I work. It's beautiful. But he said, we're going to Nuevo Nacimiento. I was like, what does that even mean? He goes, well, it's this shelter for, you'll see when you get there. Now, Nuevo Nacimiento in, in Spanish basically means new nativity or new birth. What's fascinating about this ministry is that years ago, it was started. Now, you have to also remember that Colombia is a very, very Catholic country. Being a very Catholic country, to say Mary is venerated would be an understatement. That just means they have a really, really high thinking of who Mary is, right? Sometimes I talk to some theologians who are Catholic and my friends, and I was like, sometimes you make me think that Mary is the fourth member of the Trinity. I think that's wrong. We get along well when I lead with that. Um, but it's a very, very Catholic country with a very high view of Mary. And what I, I, I was struck by when we walked into this, this, this shelter was simply this. This was made a home for teenagers who were unmarried and got pregnant. Out of all the people in the world, you can argue that they probably have the closest to Mary than anything. In a country that's supposed to exalt Mary and thank Mary, again, not exalting that they did everything right, but these are kids who were thrown out by their families. These were girls who were abandoned by the men who got them pregnant. These were girls whose families wanted nothing to do with them because all they could see was sin. All they could see was shame. And what's even more hurting is that the church... The church had turned their back on them. But it was this one ministry, this one ministry where this lady had started and bringing and collecting these girls because she wanted them to know that God loves you. She wanted them to know you have a hope and a future. And she built up this ministry from the ground up. And now it's a home where girls can come in and they can get training for jobs in the future. Their kids can get childcare. They can get education. They can be not just productive citizens in the world, but more importantly, productive citizens in the kingdom. And that's what we walked into. And I remember we walked in and, you know, we usually broke up into groups. And there was about three or four different groups. There was the, 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 the group that did crafts and art and stuff. You know, there was a group that did games. There was a group that did um, our level of ESL, which was basically like basket, basket, you know. But then there was this fourth group that was supposed to do a devotional. I remember um, uh, the, 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 the manager who was working that day walks up to me. and is like, are you the pastor? This is always a trick question. Because it's never good when they lead with, are you the pastor? Like, it's almost never good. I'll say 99% of the time it's never good. So I was just like, are you the pastor? And in my head, I'm thinking, how do I want to answer this? So I was like, yes. A little scared, you know. And I remember the manager saying to me, okay, good, then you will do a devotional. And I was like, okay, about anything in particular? He's like, oh, you're a pastor, you'll figure it out. And I was like, all right, I guess so. But I remember before we got to the devotional, we would sit around as the girls would circle in and out to our four different stations and groups. And I always wanted them to share something about themselves, right? Something to define them more about being a teen, unwed mother. Something about their hopes and dreams and joys. Something that defined them as their person. And as we sat there listening to their stories, I, heard my, I felt my heart break over and over again. Because until they walk into those doors, their life was defined not by their pregnancies, but by their abandonment. And I remember listening to their stories, and about halfway through my first session that morning, it struck me this thing about Mary. That she was like them. That she was an unwed teenage pregnant mother. 
that she was someone that the world probably looked down upon. You know, I think we do such a good job of lifting up Mary that we forget the reality of her situation. She was still 14. She was still pregnant. And I don't think it's a coincidence in this passage that after Gabriel comes to her, she goes to Elizabeth for three months, somewhere where she can be supported, somewhere where she can be, you know, helped during the first time through the first trimester, somewhere where people aren't just going to snicker and laugh and say, oh, yeah, sure, God gave you a child. I don't think it's a coincidence that God even worked out that detail that for three months she would get that support that she needed so she didn't have to walk down the street and go to the market with all the snickering, with all the comments, with everyone looking down upon her. He put her in a position of safety with Elizabeth so that she can be in the season of Advent, not just waiting, but celebrating the birth of the Savior of the world. I remember sitting in that room and hearing these stories of abandonment. And I said, you know, in your country and in your faith, you guys love Mary. And I think you challenged me to, in my faith, also love and learn from Mary. But this is what I've learned from Mary. And this is what I hope that God is saying to you this morning, that you are not defined by your sin. You're not defined by your shame. You're not even defined by this pregnancy. But even more than that, you have a God who loves you. You have a father who will never abandon you. You have a God who will always be there for you. And what I love is as you shared your hopes and dreams for your future, almost all of you talked about the hopes and dreams of your children to come. And what I love most about our God is that not only does he love you, not only will he guide you, not only will he protect you and your children, but all those dreams you have for your children, God's dreams for them are bigger and they're better. And what's amazing is that right now you're in this shelter, but forever you're home with God. What's amazing is right now you have these dreams. Right now you have these dreams, but forever God's going to take those kids. And if you give your life to Jesus and you give those kids to Jesus, God's going to raise up that generation to do wonderful things for him. You don't just have to dream about a financial future. You could dream about the kingdom of God and what he wants to do in you and what he's going to do in your children. I learned from them the story of Mary. One of the things I love about Mary is time and time again we hear God saying, I can make your impossible possible. Now, I thought the, the hardest thing to explain was the Trinity. That's a fun one. God, three in one, one in three, enjoy, right? But the virgin birth isn't easy either. If Trinity is number one, virgin birth might be number two. But what I love about this passage is I studied it this week and as I read through this week, Gabriel seems to think that's not a big deal, right? Gabriel seems to think, yeah, so you're a virgin, you're pregnant. Oh, yeah, no, don't worry about it. The Spirit will come upon you, right? God will come upon you, and he'll give you this baby because you're highly favored and you're amazing. You know what's fascinating to Gabriel to me in this passage? What's fascinating to him is it almost recounts what happened to Sarah in the Old Testament. You remember that passage about Abraham and Sarah? Like, in case you weren't sure she was old, right? Like, it says it multiple times. Again, it's just like, Sarah was old. In her old age, she was very old, and she was old, and then she got pregnant because she was old, right? That's my translation, but it's something like that, right? It's almost the same thing in this passage with Elizabeth. We celebrate the virgin birth for how amazing it was. And Gabriel's like, that's not that big of a deal. God's just going to come upon her and it's his son. You know, it's gonna, she's going to be pregnant. He's going to raise the son. It's going to be wonderful. You know what's crazy is Elizabeth, that old cousin of yours was really old in her old age. She's pregnant six months. Right? 
Like, to him, that's the amazing miracle. And even in that, though, and we'll talk about this maybe a little bit more when we focus just specifically on Elizabeth, but even that is significant. Because I think just like we as a society, and sadly we as a church, might sometimes turn our backs on, on, on people who don't follow our rules, or people who are maybe unmarried pregnant woman, women. Uh, but the other thing that's fascinating about Elizabeth is another thing we seem to do in the church is we sometimes seem to ascribe value to people by the children they have. Right? There's so many women in our churches who are hurting because they feel like they'll never be enough because they can't birth children. And sometimes we, as the good Christians, do a horrible job of passing that on to them. Right? And that was still present in their culture, too. So what's fascinating about Elizabeth is that not only does God come through in the birth of John the Baptist, but you have to know the relief that she felt because her husband was a priest. Her husband was our equivalent of a pastor, and the pastor's wife was not pregnant in a culture that children are supposed to show the sign from God. So imagine her relief. And I think that's why Gabriel is celebrating, because Gabriel's like, oh, yeah, you're young. You get pregnant all the time. That's not a big deal. God chose you. Here comes the baby. But Elizabeth, but Elizabeth is old in her old age, and she's still old, but she's pregnant, and it's six months in. The other thing I think was amazing about God making our impossible possible is simply this. In this passage we read, no word of God will ever fail. No word of God will ever fail. If we believe that hope isn't just a wish or a desire or a want, and that hope is trusting God, may we forever know that no word of God may ever fail. So when we read in our scriptures, I will never leave you or forsake you. May we remember that that's not just a word to Joshua. That's not just a word to Israel. That's not just a word to the church. That's a word to you and to us. That God will never leave us. That God will never forsake us. When we look through the Old Testament, read the stories of Jehoshaphat, who's one of my favorite people in the Bible. When he says, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And then he prays back the promises that God's made to him. May we pray that way. May we go to God, not just with our desires or our wants or our needs. May we go with God and say, you know what, God? You promised to be here. I need you right now. You promised not to leave me or forsake me. I need you right now. You promised to finish this work that you've begun in me. I need you right now. May we be a people who hear the promises of God, trust in the promises of God, and pray them back to God because he's always good. He's always true, and he's going to be faithful. Hope has to be more than your desire. It has to be your trust in God. Now, I was thinking about, you know, I was, the, one of the hardest things for me is always figuring out how to end, right? I had a teacher who said, you got to figure out how to land the plane. And for some reason, that's always in my head. Like, how are we going to land this plane? <laughs> so if you ever see me up here about 10 minutes left, you know he's trying to land the plane. One of the things that's fascinating, though, is I actually have conversations with God because that's how we work, right? It's like, God, he's like, Henry, what do you want now? Nah, he's more loving than that. But that's how I feel because I bother him a lot, right? But one of the things I was trying to say is like, well, God, how do we take, what is the lesson from Mary that we as a people can take today so we can go on our merry way? That was a Christmas joke, see? Like three of you got it. I love you. The rest of you, I like you. I think what God said is simply this. The lesson from Mary is that hope is defined by trust, yes. But the lesson from Mary is that God chooses us to bring his son into the world. God chooses us to bring his son into the world. God chooses us 
to bring his son into the world. Mary was highly favored, but so are you. For God so loved the world. Yes, he sent his son to be born of Mary, but he sent his son for you. We are Christ's church. We are the ones he's left behind to show this world what his love looks like, to show this world what his touch feels like, to show this world that darkness does not win, that the light is already winning, to show this world that brokenness does not define you because we have a God who makes you whole, to show this world that no matter what seems like it's winning, only God wins in the end. We are Christ's church. We're so highly favored. Mary was highly favored and chosen by God, but so are you. God chose Mary, and God has chosen you. I'm always struck by the fact that our God spoke the world into existence. I'm always struck by the fact that our God is this God of all things. But yet, when he looks at every single one of us, he says to us, you are my masterpiece. You're my workmanship. You're the one I crafted. I spoke the world into existence, but I'm going to take my time to make you, you. I think that's amazing that God chose Mary, but God chose you. And God chose you to bring his son into the world. You're not going to birth Jesus. I know, sorry. But I think we as Christ's disciples, we can bring Jesus by bringing hope into the world. I think in this world that's broken, I think in this world that's dark, I think in this world that needs healing, you can bring hope into the world. And you might be saying, that sounds like there's a lot of big things out there. How can I bring hope? Well, I'm glad you asked. I got four things. I'm sure you can come up with more, but these are the four I came up with. The first one is simply this. You can bring Jesus into your world by trusting God's promises. Trusting God's promises. So if we read, I will need, never leave you nor forsake you, we need to trust God in this. If we read that I will hold no condemnation against you, that your sin and your shame has been forgiven, that I'm always going to be on your side, that I'm always here for you to cast your burdens upon, that I'm always going to be your God, that you are the joy of my life, that you are the love and beloved of God. We need to bring hope by trusting in God's promise because when we trust in God's promise, our world sees something that's very different than what they're used to. When we trust that our God is good, we can speak into our world because we're not talking about everything around them. We're talking about the God we know. When we say that God is love, one of the greatest critiques of my generation to the church that I hope we as the church will listen to more is simply this. You're known more for what you're against than what you're for. Isn't it time that we're defined by what we're for? Isn't it time that we finally listen to Jesus who says, they will know you're my disciples by your love. We need to trust in God's promises because when we trust in God's promises, we take with them our faith, we take with them our histories, we take with them everything that God is, and that's what we're sharing with the world. And speaking of sharing, it's not just about trusting God's promises. We have to commit and do a better job to share God's good deeds. One of the things I love about being up here every week is I get to see miracles upon miracles just by looking at you guys. Everyone in this room has stories, has testimonies, have things that God has done to bring you through, things that God has done to heal you, relationships that God has fixed, ways that God has used you to do such good in this world. 
but we got to do a better job of sharing those things. And it's not just how we can share it better as a church. It's how you can share it in your individual lives. This world has a different narrative than the one you're living in. This world has a different destiny they're looking to than the one you know. This world has a different value system than what Christ values. But by telling your story, by sharing your miracles, you know, our generation previously thought we had to win the world over by convincing them to follow Jesus, right? By beating them in the argument. My generation has taught me, and I hope to teach the church, and we can teach our world, that we can win people to Jesus simply by telling our story. People can argue your facts, but if you say, this is how God's brought me through, this is how God's healed me. This is what God's done in my family. This is what God's done in my life. This is how God has made me here stand before you. That's a little bit harder to argue. We need to be better about sharing our stories. That's how you bring hope into this world. The third way we can bring hope into this world is simply knowing and walking in this. You are blessed to be a blessing. You're blessed to be a blessing. And I'm not just talking about what's in your bank account. I'm not talking about what's in your education and on your resume. I'm not talking about everything that this world values. I'm saying that every single thing belongs to God. And every single thing God's given you, you should be thinking of ways to use it for your glory. If God's given you the blessing of a bank account, use that for his glory. If God's given you the blessing of education, use that for his glory. If God's given you the blessing of a job, of a job in this hard times, use that for his glory. If God's giving you the blessing of children or people you can invest in, use that for his glory. Everything that God's given you should be given back to him. So the question then becomes, God, I'm blessed to be a blessing. One, what are my blessings? And two, how am I going to use these blessings to bless you? Because my sisters and my brothers, we're either building our estates on earth that will burn and fire away, or we're building the kingdom of God that will last forever. So if you're blessed to be a blessing, you need to take a step back this morning and say, God, what have you given me? all the things that you've blessed me with, and then how am I going to use this for your kingdom come, for your will to be done? You're blessed to be a blessing. Amen. And the last one is simply this. We are so loved by God. But now we have to go and love. It's not just my generation that's saying the church is known for more what it's against. It's the world. It's the whole world. You know, Mary is defined by being a servant. My dream, one of my dreams for this church is that we will be defined as the church that loves. That we will be defined as the church that loves God. We'll be defined by the church that loves one another, yes. But we'll be defined by the church that loves our city, our community, our region. We will be defined by our love. And that's not just a crazy dream I have. That's a dream that Jesus has for all of his disciples. They will know we are Christians by our love. By your love, they will know you're his disciple. We are so loved by God. Sisters and brothers, can we this morning bring hope into our world by committing to be known by our love, by committing that everyone we meet will know that we love and care for them. And it's going to be a little bit hard. It's going to take us forgetting our selfish ways. It's going to take us forgetting the ways of this world. It's going to take us looking to Jesus and saying, God, I need to love, and I need you to help me love my neighbor, love my boss, love my children for some of us. Love my parents for some of us. 
but are we willing to bring hope into this world by committing to be known by our love? You know, Mary brought God's son into the world. And when I think about that, and I think about where we are in the story right now, she was pregnant, or she is pregnant. And I thought about that, I'm trying to land the plane, so you're going to have to go with it, I mean, I thought about this, right? In all of us, God lives. Jesus hasn't just come Jesus didn't just live. Jesus didn't just die. Jesus wasn't just raised again. He's up in heaven. But what he's left behind is the Holy Spirit in the church. And in the church, which is every single one of us, he's made a deposit of the Holy Spirit. So if I thought about that for a second, that if Jesus coming back and the advent is the second coming, and that's the birth of the new age and the new day to come, if that's what we're going by, it means that right now with the Spirit in us, we are all pregnant. And we're pregnant with this, the possibility We're pregnant with the possibility of what? Of birthing Christ's kingdom into our world. That's what we're all called to do. If the Spirit lives in you, you're pregnant with possibility. If God has blessed you, you're pregnant with possibility. If God loves you, you're blessed with possibility. All of us then have to start thinking in a way, how can I birth God's kingdom into this world? And the reason that question is important is simply this. All of us are tasked and called to bring God's son into this world. This is not just the plight of Mary. This is the plight for every single one who chooses to follow Jesus. If you choose to follow Jesus and you say Jesus is Lord, your work, your office, your call is to bring his son into the world. So are we willing this morning to say like Mary, I am the Lord's servant. May God's word be fulfilled in me. You know, I I can't have a sermon about hope. I can't have a sermon about trusting God. We can't preach about hope this morning without at least giving you an invitation. And that invitation is simply this. If there's anyone in this room who's never, ever chosen to follow Jesus, if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know the pardon of their sins, who doesn't know that death can be defeated, who doesn't know that Jesus has come for you, if there's anyone in this room who's never said, God, I fall short, God, I need you. God, I need you to forgive me of my sins. God, my father, I need you to welcome me back home. If there's anyone in this room who's never asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins, I pray that even right now, the Holy Spirit may come upon you. I pray that even right now, by the power of my voice that you're hearing is even deafened and just gets quiet and the Spirit gets even louder and louder in your person to bring you back home again. We have a God who desires for all his children to come back home. So if you've never asked God to forgive you of your sins, if you've never said, God, you know, I might believe in you, but I haven't given my life to you, all of my life to you, I want to give you an invitation this morning because if hope is trusting God, I want you to trust God this morning. And if you're willing to trust God this morning, Scripture says all of heaven stops and they rejoice. The angels in heaven rejoice anytime a daughter or a son comes back again and chooses to follow Jesus. So if you haven't made that commitment, I'd like to invite you this morning. And for those of us who maybe have made that commitment, I'd like to invite you this morning to do this, to rededicate your life to God. Right now in this moment, to say, God, 
I believe in you. God, hope is trusting you. God, I want to give you my life because I want to bring hope into this world. This world that's dark, God, I want to be light. This world that's broken, God, I want to help heal. God, help me to trust your promises. Help me to share my testimony. Help me because I'm blessed to be a blessing. Help me to love because I'm so loved. And both of those things come with surrender. Both of those things come with surrender. So if you've never chosen to follow God, please, I invite you right now to choose to follow Jesus. And if you have chosen to follow God, I invite you right now to surrender. Surrender and give your life back to him again. Because faith is not a desire or a want. Faith is trusting God. And our world will tell us that we can have hope in so many things. We can have hope in ourselves. We can have hope in our bank accounts. We can have hope in our children. We can have hope in our blessings. We can have hope in all the things, our education. We can have hope in our job. But this morning, Mary reminds us, and Scripture reminds us, and the Spirit reminds us that our hope is only found its home. Our hope only finds its home in Jesus Christ. So where is your hope today? I'd like to invite up the worship team back up. We're going to close with singing In Christ Alone. This is one of my favorite songs because in this song, we start off with the hope of Advent, about Jesus coming in the form of a babe. But as we sing this song, we go through the whole gospel and we explain that Emmanuel, God, has come. The baby grew up to live to show us how to please God. Jesus then died on the cross and he's raised on the third day. We sing the full gospel, but then we end with hope. We end with hope of heaven, not just to come, but we end with hope that we in Christ alone can make his kingdom come and his will be done. I'd like to also invite up the intercessors. We'd love to pray for you for anything and everything. This morning, if you chose to follow Jesus, we'd love for you to come up and please tell us. Because it's great that the angels in heaven get to rejoice, but we like to dance too. But if you don't know what that means and you have questions about it, come up, talk to me, talk to the intercessors. We would love to talk to you about what that means. But everyone in this room, as we sing this song of hope, may we be reminded that hope is trusting God. But may we be reminded that God has chosen all of us to birth his son and his kingdom into our world. Let's stand and sing.